0: listening to Dairy Voice, a podcast
1: exclusively for the dairy industry. One of our sponsors of the Dairy Voice podcast is National DHIA. NDHIA ensures information accuracy and represents their members' interests. They are the direct voice for the dairy information industry. To find out more, go to dhia.org. Our episode today is one that I've been looking forward to for quite a while. We're speaking with David Rama of the cattle exchange based in Delhi, New York in the southeastern part of the state. Dave is widely known across the industry and he's uh, done a lot, seen a lot, and always a pleasure to talk to. David, welcome to the show.
0: Well, Joel, thank you for ha- having me.
1: Looking forward to it. Uh, yeah. starting, starting back at the beginning, you didn't have what we might call a conventional grow up on the farm uh, boyhood. Uh, how, did you, how did you get into dairy?
0: Well, I actually grew up in Yorktown Heights, uh, New York, and uh, we were about 45 minutes north of the city and uh, had a couple of small herds next to me, but we had one premier breeding establishment. Uh, it was called the Hilltop, or excuse me, uh, Hanover Hill Guernseys. Uh, it was owned by a very wealthy man, um, and it was managed by David Younger. And I, I grew up just several miles from there and really got my start in the Guernseys. Um, and it was, you know, I just enjoyed it. loved loved working on the farm and had a passion for it. And then I went on to agricultural school in Doylestown, Pennsylvania and, uh, worked every summer that I could on various farms and, and then, uh, you know, eventually, uh, the day after I graduated from college, I started work at a place called Dream Street Holsteins in uh, in upstate New York.
1: Well, tell us about Dream Street. That's quite a saga in the purebred industry back in the '80s. Um, give us the give us the background on Dream Street operation, and then kind of what your what some of your roles were.
0: Well, I you know I, I met a man named George Morgan one day. I was clipping at a sale in Canada and. And uh, I remember it was like over Easter vacation or something, my last year of college. And and Pete Heffering and Dave Younger and George Morgan, and they were all up in Canada for the Overwear dispersal. And uh, I met George, offered me a job milking cows. So I milked cows for a couple of years for Dream Street. Dream Street was an organization that had a tremendous number of investors from around the country, primarily out of New York City, back when the investment tax credits were a big thing, and and uh, investors could could plow money into the business and and take you know heavy tax breaks uh, as cattle were treated as as equipment. So uh, we had a number of investors from down in Wall Street. Uh, had people like John Lennon and Yoko Ono to the owner of Tiffany's or the, the CEO of Tiffany's to the vice presidents of first Boston and Sherson of American and so forth and so forth. And uh, we had a number of different herds. They built it up to uh, where it was the largest registered herd in the country at the time. It probably had 20, 22 or 23 different milk farms running here in New York and uh, some heifer operations. And, I eventually moved up the ladder, uh, you know, went on to manage some of the farms for a while, and then worked out of the main office, corporate headquarters for a while. And then in 1981, we, I just decided that eventually the tax breaks would disappear and I had to start my own business. And, and that's what I did. Uh, in the spring of 1981, we just, my wife and I took off and started our own cattle company called the Cattle Exchange. So that's how that developed.
1: And uh, you were certainly right about the tax breaks uh, ending in the uh, Reagan years with the Tax Reform Act. What was that, 86 maybe?
0: Yeah, I think it was. Reaching halt? Yeah, you know, the handwriting to me was on the wall. I I wanted to, uh, I would have liked to stay at Dream Street, to be honest with you. I, I loved it there, but I felt at the time that we had to invest in facilities, that we needed to build some large. uh, Instead of having 22 or 25 farms, we needed to have one operation, a lot less overhead, a lot less people. Uh, I really wanted to build a a complex or buy a complex. And I, at the time, uh, and I just couldn't get uh, the people that really needed to make that decision to make that decision, and uh, the the investment money was poured into cattle, not so much facilities, and uh, uh, so that 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 became a problem because you knew eventually you have to make money. That's the bottom line. You got and you got to make money on your milk. If you can't do that, it's not going to work. To me, I, I saw I saw the future didn't bode well. Uh, so you know eventually. Uh, they, they did change some of the tax laws and and I think Dream Street went on for another six years and, and then it, and then it kind of uh, dissipated. but we, but my career in the cattle business took off. I mean in nineteen eighty one we started selling cattle privately, and I would actually take you know people would call me and say hey i've got investors and they we're looking for the, for a cow, a superior cow or this or that. And we would, you know, I would broker cattle, and I would handle semen, and I would travel all over the country looking for good cattle, and, and then eventually we started into the auction business, and that's really what we developed, was an auction company.
1: And that's, of course, what you're known for, for low these several decades, but tell us, uh, uh, tell us about your early sales, maybe your first sale. Uh, how did you get started in the auction business?
0: My, my first sale was just down the road from where I live, about six miles. Uh, a gentleman uh, name Ed Rogers, and a uh, real nice guy, had a, had a pretty nice tie nice stall herd, nice, nice herd of cows. Uh, he gave us a chance, gave us a crack at it, and, and it went very well. Um, and, uh, you know, at the time, I, I would hire auctioneers to come and work for us. And eventually um I went on to auctioneer school because it was costing me a significant amount of money to hire an auctioneer all the time. And uh really after that uh we started to uh go out, venture out and, and solicit for sales. And it was slow going at first. I mean, you know, back you, you know as well as anybody back then, back as uh Bacchus Horace and uh, his brother were going and they were in a sales business for years and they eventually sold their business. But, uh, you know, they had had a tremendous hold, uh, rightfully so, on the registered cattle business in the East. And uh, so we started out, it was slow going for the first five, six, seven years. Uh, But eventually we got to the point where, we, I mean, I think our highest year was 38. I uh, just looked it up. About 38 sales on the road. I mean, we were a road traveling road show. I mean, we didn't have a sale barn. We'd go from farm to farm, and you know, 38 sales in a year is is quite a few when you think you might be in Vermont one day and Pennsylvania, southern Pennsylvania four days later. Um, and 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 that's what we did for a number of years
1: and selling principally registered Holsteins, uh, as I recall.
0: Yeah, that was that was our forte for a long time. And, you know, it, and I loved it. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, we, we sold herds. You know, uh, I mean, I look back and think about the herds, big names, you know, whether it's Rice Crest. I mean, we had a couple of sales for Rice Crest. And, you know, we sold cattle in what I call the glory days. Joel, and you remember those days when the Holstein world at the time, you would, you might have, oh my goodness, I remember growing up and it would have the 150 pages, you know. Uh, and, and you know, you think about sales like Rice Crest and Odyssey Farm and Pencole and, I mean, just Ridgedale and Lyle Haven and, you know, we, we've we done Tierbach and Joywell and I mean, I could name sales, sale after sale. We did, we did some of the greatest sales. Some of them have averaged, you know, some of our, a lot of our herd sales would average three to five thousand back in the day. I mean, uh, we, you know, we we managed a sale with a million dollar apple cow that, you know, today looks like one of the cheapest cows that ever sold. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, real, realistically, we worked with so many great people around the country. I, I, you know, I'm in, my, in the twilight years of my life, as you know, and, and we, we, you and I have been immersed in this business for most of our lives, and, and uh, we lived in the great years of purebred breeding. But today, I move a lot of commercial cattle. And and I'm going to say today that that is probably 80 percent of my business, moving commercial cattle, and it's and we do herd sales whether it's whether it's you know a lot of the bigger sales uh, we've done sales with 3,000 head, and we've done sales with 175 head, but um, things have changed in the business dramatically as you and I both know and everybody else in the last. Fifteen years have been this uh, light speed for our industry. And, uh, And people have to change with the changes that are coming at us.
1: Hey there, after you've finished enjoying this podcast, might I recommend you join me, Tim Hammerich, and our guests on Clarity at Work from Zoetis. We'll be talking genetics and their place on the dairy. You've got a seat at the table as we discuss innovations, what's next for the industry, and more. I have to find the value in everything that I do. And I still find value in Clarified Plus. So we're going to continue to use it. Just search for Clarity at Work, wherever you listen to podcasts. Once you finish with this podcast, of course. Dave, before we get into some of these changes and, and how you see the business today, let's, let's shift gears back a bit. As you mentioned, uh, Horace and Charles Backus had a great following and did a wonderful job in, in New York and Pennsylvania for many years and other parts of the country too, but they sold their business and uh, that changed. And then you began working with Horace Bacchus in the box with you. And the two of you made a made a great combination for, for purebred folks. Talk uh, a little bit about how you got involved. How, how did that start with Horace and then give us a few highlights of your years with Horace Bacchus.
0: Well, you know, Horace, I mean, uh, everybody i mean i don't horace you know to me is one of the great mentors i mean he's just like a father figure to me i still speak to horace even even you know he's he's retired but um you know i try to speak to him two or three times a month (coughs) horace back is listen i mean back in the days of earlville When, you know, back in the early days, they really built up the registered business. I mean, when you think about enthusiasm and and the drive for the registered cow, you've got to think back as uh, Horace and Charlie Backus and their dad. I mean, their whole family. You know, they did sell their business. Finally, Charlie had retired. He decided to retire. And and then they sold uh, their company to Backus Associates. Uh, a group of, you know, nice guys, but the business basically faltered. Then I asked Horace if he would come work with me to, you know, assist me to read pedigrees. And he, you know, I, I tell you, is the greatest decision I ever made. Horace and I would, you know, I can't tell you how many meals we ate together and how many sales we worked, but he worked, Horace and I sold together side by side longer than he sold with his brother, Charlie, you know, eventually just a couple of years ago, uh, I, you know, I had to say to Horace, listen, it's, it's, it's time to retire because he, he was driving back from a sale and, and, you know, he fell asleep and, you know, almost had a bad accident. And I, I just didn't want to, I just couldn't have him do that anymore. But, God bless him. I mean, he'd still be working. <laughs> he, he, you know, <laughs> nobody knew the pedigrees better than Horace Backus and, and, uh, met more people and people just loved him to death. And uh, I'll tell you what, it, it, years and years, we would sit around the tables and update our catalogs. And, and again, um, as you well know, to see him and shake his hand and, and talk about cattle and people and, he could remember, He knew everybody, everybody. You talk about anybody from 50 years ago in the business that he knew Osborndale farm, he'll go into the entire pedigree of the Kellogg family. That's just the way he, that's just the way he was. And it still is. So, yeah, I was, I, I got to work with some of the great people in the business and, um, and, and that, that, you know, I got some fond memories, but you know, we're still in the business.
1: And you're, let's talk a little bit about your, your wonderful wife, Mary, who's been your, your stalwart partner uh, in the sale business and rights insurance and has been integral. In fact, there are many of us who would rather work with her than you. but uh,
0: I, 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 Everybody would. I mean, <laughs> my wife, Mary, is, is the most important part of my business. So, uh, you know, she's the mother of my children. We've been married uh, 46 years. And uh, She's the greatest partner I could ask for. Uh, she was a, basically a nurse and got transformed into, you know, doing all the books for the cattle exchange, running escrow accounts, keeping track of everybody's funds. We, we, I mean, you know, we have a small business, but uh, you know, some years it was it was pretty considerable. And and my wife Mary was her specialty, her forte was. And we did this for years. and I don't think anybody else does it. If, if there's partnerships involved and there's five partners, Mary will write five checks rather than one check. But what happens is, and we, you know, it was a learning experience from a, a guy named Jim Ruppert. Back in the old days, Jim Ruppert would be partners <laughs> with a number of people in New York. And he'd own a third of this and a quarter of that and a half of this one and then he'd buy something at the sale. Maybe you buy a third of this and a quarter of that. And Mary would do these, what you call deductions, and, you know, they got the commission and he bought this and you have to do that. I mean, the reconciliation, she's the only person I know who would do a total reconciliation that way. I mean, there's a lot of partnerships in our business, but she has, she, i tell you what, she has um, done a fantastic job and, and uh there's nobody better at doing clerking a sale than her as far as i'm concerned uh, everybody does love working with her
1: they sure do we're we're delighted that uh that you speak so well of her because uh she's she's a a, a great woman looking looking more recently you know i think we can say now with the benefit of hindsight that uh the business started to change pretty fast when genomics uh, became accessible and applied to dairy cattle breeding. Kind of give us your take on what you saw happening and, and what has happened uh, in terms of genomic values for cattle, purebred and grain.
0: Yeah, you know, the, the, the entire industry has gone through a major transition. I mean, we are, when you talk about scientific breakthroughs, whether it's genomics, DNA testing, or whether it's robotics, or all these new innovations that have come through in the last 15 years, it is just amazing to witness what's happening. Now, for me, the thing with genomics, the, these dairies that are getting larger and larger and larger, which is just a fact of life, it's called megatrends. You know, I read a book one day. It was called Megatrends, and I always it was about twenty years ago. And I could see all this coming at us, and it's happened. And you know, you're you're trying to you're trying to cut labor, increase efficiency, and at the same time, genomics. They look at genomics. They look at it as a scientific effort to increase milk production without building more facilities. I mean, if you can expand your herd average, the way that the way that people look at it, especially if they're large, if you could take your herd average from eighty eight pounds a day to ninety three pounds a day and you're milking six thousand cows, you start doing the math. It doesn't need to be about dollars, it just needs to be about cents. Because when you start multiplying a couple of cents times six thousand cows or whatever numbers you're talking, it's a lot of money. I mean it's it's a It's a lot of money. The thing about genomics is it does not tell you what the greatest ones are. It sorts out the bottom end, the bottom third that the bull studs used to buy and spend a lot of money proving. It'll it'll sort out the ones they don't need, like that are at the bottom. The other two thirds at the top, they're going to have to sort themselves out eventually, but they eliminate the bottom end. Of their of their selections, so they they sample less bulls. It, it it's interesting to me. The other thing about what's happened in the business is, you know, if you study this a little bit, bulls like Pony Farmer Linda Chief, who threw some major recessives, but if you go back in the pedigrees of all these cattle, commercial cattle and all the cattle, you'll see Chief back there. I mean, he's back there, the highest percentage you'll ever find of any bull. And he carried a lot of recesses. So we've identified recesses. I mean, there used to be a time where you would get calves. I remember all those calves you would try to treat, and you couldn't get them, you couldn't get them to live, no matter what you gave them. Well, it turned out they were carrying some recesses. Now we've identified those, and we've eliminated those. So instead of somebody losing 10% of their calf population or 8% of their calf population, today you hear a lot of people say, we lose about one and a half to 2%, 3%. So you got more cattle that are living all the time. I mean, it's a positive thing, but we have more cattle. And there's, that's one of the things I love about what's happened science-wise, being able to identify recesses, which – in turn has saved the dairyman a lot of cattle and, uh, and, and a lot of money and expense, but the genomic thing is, is not going to go away. It's here. It's proven. I know that for our business, we, we, we host, uh, uh about three or four sales a year online, uh, where we sell the highest genomic females in the country and IVF sessions from those females as well. And, uh, they've been very successful sales. Uh, you know, we sold cattle for four or five, 600,000. We sold the sales of average 35 to 38,000 pretty much continually on, on calves and open heifers. Um, and, you know, 60% of the buyers basically have been to bull studs, but 40% have gone on to breeders and, I I tell you what, it's not going to change. I mean, we we have a breeding business. The breeding business with great pedigrees, I don't think is going to disappear. But the commercial end of this business has really, really zoomed to the forefront. And and that's what, you know, that's what a lot of breeders are trying to uh, make a sire for, for the commercial man.
1: Dave, I've heard it said that uh, between genomics and, and sex semen a bit, but certainly genomics uh, has created interest among what we used to call commercial dairymen, uh, whose idea of a breeding program 20 years ago was how much $2 semen can I buy, to, to folks who are now investing in genomic testing, investing in the top bulls, even though they don't have a registered herd. Have you seen that
0: that, oh, yeah. That, again, like I say,
1: Interest in commercial folks?
0: They're very smart, very wise. You don't necessarily need to build more buildings. You need to take your cattle to the next level. And that is that is what a, a lot of the, the, the dairymen that really pay attention, to take that herd average. If you bump it five or six pounds on a number of cattle, it makes a huge difference. And I'm, I'm seeing that everywhere. I mean, it, it just makes sense. And people want to use calving I mean, cavines. I'll tell you the truth. There is a lot of people using beef semen. And uh, at the same time, on the, on the lower end of their herds, because, again, with sex semen, they'll use it on their heifers. But they and they use it on their best on the top end of their milk cows, but the rest of the cattle, are probably you know, a lot of people are using uh, beef semen, and and that makes a lot of sense because in this world today, if a dairy heifer is worth eighty five cents, ninety cents a pound, and a beef heifer is worth a dollar fifty, it doesn't. You don't really have to spend a lot of time doing the math on that one.
1: Well, Dave, you've mentioned the changes in the industry and, and how your business has changed because of it. Take yourself back to your days at, at Delaware Valley and you were getting out of school. We know that there's a lot of good, enthusiastic dairy kids uh, in school today. If a, if a student or a young dairyman comes to talk to you and says, Dave, how, how can I work in this dairy industry? Uh, what, what, what should I be doing? What should I be planning on? Uh, what, what would your advice be to, to a younger person?
0: Well, I've had a number of, uh, you know, instances like that. And, and the first thing I tell them is don't go back home unless, you know, it's a very large operation. I mean, I, right or wrong, you got to get out and you have to get about. I mean, I think about a man like Jonathan Lamb. Let's just use him. I mean, Jonathan had, you know, Oakfield a- Corners in New York. And a uh, large dairy in New York. And when he got, uh, you know, during college, he interned at uh, uh, down in Florida at Don Benix. You have to get out and see what other people are doing and learn new experiences and learn different ways of, of doing things. So my advice is for a lot of these students to get out and see something different and learn something different. I'll be honest with you, Joel. I'm the first person to tell people if you're going to milk a lot of cows and try to make serious money at this, I have no problem, but it's very difficult to start a herd of 50 or 60 or 70 cows and think you're going to make a livelihood out of that today. And so I tell a lot of these students, apply at a large, at some of these large dairies, you go there after after you've been in college, and you spend a year or two on those farms, and you will learn so much in a year or two on those farms. And if and if you're aggressive, uh, and dedicated, and and enthusiastic, you will always have a well-paying position on on those large run operations. And most of the owners of the large operations are managers. If you say, hey, I'd like to own some cattle, maybe 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 head, nobody generally is going to have a problem with that. And so you can almost build your herd within a herd and get well paid and be dedicated and enthusiastic and, and love what you're doing. And I I, I have seen this numerous times. I've seen people go on to where they become partners in large operations, uh, I, you know, and it just thrills me to see that. So um, I want to see people love what they do, but I want to see them make money at what they do.
1: Well, I think your advice is very sound, and uh, I would certainly endorse it 100%. Not that my endorsement means much, but your experience is such that I think people need to listen carefully to what you suggest. Dave, As we as we wrap up here, where do you see us heading, and uh, what do you uh, what do, what do you see in the business?
0: Well, uh, again, Joel, you know, you look at the the cow numbers are not dropping; it's the number of herds that is dropping, the the number of farms in our business. And is it, you know, inputs get higher all the time? That's a fact of life. We have a number of it's interesting. We have a number the smallest farms in the country. Uh, many of them are in co-ops. And right now, like here in the East, I mean, we have uh, some limits. People are curtailed from expansion. And as you and I know, oh, you know, if I milked 80 cows five years ago today, I might need to milk 90 cows. Then it would be slow growth, slow growth on our small herd. they maybe add 10 new cows every 10 years or just so they kept up with some of the expenses. Well, they, it, it's very hard to do that today because if you overproduce from what you produced last year on a certain time, you're going to get docked a substantial amount of money on that excess milk. I mean, you might get docked 9 bucks a hundredweight on the extra. So the little little producer is really, I mean, unfortunately, is trapped. They're going to pay more for trucking. They're going to pay more for what they buy. They're curtailed at how much they can make, whereas a number of the larger herds, they can expand. A lot of the larger herds have no limitations. Everything they buy, they buy cheaper. Everything they make, they get paid more for. And I'll be honest with you, it's called megatrends. And it's the way it is. Joel, I don't know if you remember when they put the New York State Thruway through, I-90. There were all these businesses that were on Route 20 that stretched from one side of New York to the other prior to that. There were little hotels. There were diners. There were businesses on Route 20 that thrived on traffic that would just roll from western New York to eastern New York and vice versa and when a new york state thruway opened up route 20 started to die and then eventually you drive route 20 and you'll see these old buildings that are sitting there they're old diners or maybe they're old restaurants or old motels and that was a change it was a tremendous change for the to, you know for progress but at the same time you know there were a lot of businesses that died because of it And we have this same thing going on in the dairy business. We've been contracting for years. And I don't see that this contraction is going to end anytime soon. With a positive thought, farmers can do anything. They are the smartest people in the world. They can run virtually any piece of equipment. They can fix anything. They can take care of any animal they want to take care of. They are, as far as I'm concerned, they're the most talented people in the world. And there are other things to do and, and really have a nice lifestyle. And I, and I tell a lot of them, just please, you know, do the right thing. And uh, if it's not working, don't beat yourself up. It's just change. And I think that a lot of people need to look at that. So that's, that's kind of my feeling on the industry.
1: Well, david i think you've wrapped that up very well and uh, really appreciate you sharing your experiences and your thoughts and insights with us we've been speaking today with david rama of the cattle exchange he's based in delhi new york dave thanks for being with us
0: joel thank you very much uh, god bless wish everybody the very best
1: thank you david and this is joel hastings your host for dairy voice podcast And you can find us at dairybusiness.com or wherever you download your podcasts.